Good morning, and uh, welcome to welcome to everybody to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Larry Kay, and I will be uh, doing my best to host uh, the presentation this morning. Today is Sunday, October 29th, 2023, and the uh, I'm going to give you the share ID numbers. Hold on one second here. The share ID numbers for Friday, October 27th. Uh, the 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time meeting on Friday, that number is 20,782. That's 20782. And for the 10 a.m. meeting on Friday, that number is 2,000, 2000 20,783. That's 20783. This morning, A Vision for You presents two employers, not just for bosses, that's for sure. Our speaker is going to bring to life, uh, Janet's going to do a great job, bring it to life, Chapter 10 to employers. She's also going to uh, share some examples of how its spiritual uh, principles can be applied to any number of different situations, in fact, numerous situations. So looking forward to that. Um, if I sound like I'm in a tunnel, I'm in my car, so I apologize, but hopefully I'm coming through clear. You know, one of the most difficult things I find for any person who doesn't suffer from addiction is really to try to understand the mental and physical state of someone who does, right? It's 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 quite a conundrum. And, you know, whether a person is, is a non-alcoholic or a recovered alcoholic, the, the, the same question remains. You know, how can I best help someone who is tethered to addiction? And it's a, it's a tough deal. And frankly, that, that's true whether you're a boss, uh, you're, a, you're a partner, you're a, a sponsor, a neighbor, a friend, doesn't really matter. You know, how can, I, how can I be of help to this person? And how can I have a deeper understanding of just what we're up against, what that person is up against? You know, would it, would it work to, uh, to lecture and moralize and condemn? Well, you know, that could be my misunderstanding. Um, and and, and I, I often saw where that got me, um, and it, it certainly didn't help the sufferer, and it certainly didn't do anything for anybody, really, when I did that. But the, the big book was written with one overriding purpose in mind, and, it, and, and it, it, it states pretty emphatically, it says, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered. You know, the, and, and the book is not going to be vague about it, really. Um, about you know what we need to understand about the disease, what we need to do based on that understanding, and our primary text, this this book that we that we you know we lovingly refer to as the big book, it, it's entitled Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, this text is going to lay out a map, a roadmap. It's going to lay out a blueprint, sort of a step-by-step -step instruction manual for the still suffering compulsive overeater, in fact, anyone that wants to help that person, on how to get well and how to stay well, how to access the necessary power so that you, you never have to compulsively eat again. In fact, you never, ever have to eat comp uh, compulsively again. Now, now, because we're each unique human beings with our own life narrative, you know, we, we have our own perceptive lens in which we try to make sense of our world and our experiences, you know, there's going to naturally be different ways that we may interpret a, a word or a sentence, right? And, 
you know, and, and each of us may extract uh, an entirely different meaning from what we read in the literature. Um, and, you know, you may read something and it speaks to you in trombone. And I, and I read the same darn thing, and I'll be darned if it doesn't read if it doesn't touch me in cello, right? And and that's okay. Why is it okay? Because clearly, if you think about it, hasn't God enabled millions upon millions of human beings with different experiences, different perceptions, to recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body? You know, the point is that the pioneers of this program. And, and someone's unmuted, but that's okay. But I just wanted to let know someone's typing away there. The point is the pioneers of this program discovered a way out. And I'm glad they did because as it turns out, the way out was the result of taking certain prescribed actions. And these actions resulted in accessing a power greater than themselves. And I want to always remember to love and accept people right where they're at. You know, can I do that? Do I have the capacity as a human being to love others right where they're at? Or can, or can I truly love and accept others when they're, they're you know, not right where I'm at necessarily? Can I accept them? And, and I have found that I can. You know, is it possible? Is it conceivable for me to, to let go of the presumption that I, that how I interpret the literature, this word or that word or this sentence, is the only way that it could be interpreted? Am I that uh, selfish in my understanding? Because in the final analysis, the literature and the suggested spiritual actions, they lead us to hope, don't they? The literature moves us to action. And in so doing, it pulls us from the quicksand. It pulls us across the bridge to freedom. And it brings us towards the miracle of recovery. Now, joining us this morning to guide us in developing a deeper understanding of Chapter 10 to employers is Janet B. And Janet B. is from North Carolina, and she's a dedicated member of Overeaters, Overeaters Anonymous. She's committed to the practice and the teaching of the 12 steps and the 12 traditions as a way of life. So please join me with, with uh, great gratitude in welcoming Janet B. to the line. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Larry. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really excited to be with you all this morning. I'm Janet B., recovered compulsive eater in North Carolina. Up until two months ago, I was in New Jersey. So if you look for me on the vision phone list, I believe it still says New Jersey. Um, so two employers. You know, it's really interesting. Yesterday, out of the blue, a friend of mine in this program texted me and said, I'm speaking on two employers today. And so we started a chat and he told me three things about this chapter. He said it was one of the few chapters not written by Bill Wilson. It was written by Hank Parkhurst, that Hank didn't believe in God and that Hank died drunk. And I was thinking about that this morning and I thought, that's really sad that he didn't believe in God. Um, this whole book is about God and he didn't believe. And then I thought, well, of course he died drunk because he didn't have the solution. And I thought about myself in my first six and a half years in Overeaters Anonymous. Those of you who don't know my story, I spent my first six and a half years in Overeaters Anonymous eating compulsively. I tried really hard. I did whatever I was told. 
But I was like someone going to diabetic anonymous meetings and no one was talking about insulin. I didn't get better. In fact, I got worse. Um, and then after six and a half, I met someone who showed up with a big book at a convention. She said there was a group of a whole bunch of her who were abstinent. I went to that meeting and it was a meeting where you stood up and I said, I've been in the program for six and a half years and I still can't stop binging. And this old timer said to me, you may have been going to meetings for six and a half years, but you have not been in the program. And that's what I find so sad about Hank Parker, that he was around this program, going to meetings, doing whatever, but he didn't work this program because this program is all about God. And the third thing that I thought was that in spite of Hank not believing in God and authoring this chapter, God used Hank anyway, and God's fingerprints are all over this chapter. Um, I love going through this chapter and just looking for the spiritual principles we can pick out, right? Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, a spiritual awakening. God basically comes in and rewires my soul so that my selfish, self-centered priorities are changed into his God-centered, other-centered priorities, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Well, what are these principles? And I think they're all throughout the book, and this chapter has a bunch of them. So I'm just going to do kind of like a survey, not go deep dive, but just a survey of some of the principles and just what I got out of it. Like Larry said, two people could read this, get two totally separate things out of it. Um, but here's my take. Um, so if you have your book, I'm going to start page 137, where Hank had said there were he had been a boss and he had a few employees who died drunk because he didn't know how to help him. And then he says, what irony, I became an alcoholic myself. And but for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. So I think a couple things here. The first principle, be an understanding person. We have to take time and have compassion and think about what that person is like. Um, you know, there was a relative who was very instrumental in raising me. And this person yelled at me a lot to the point where I would shake whenever I heard that model of car in the street. And, you know, years later, after working the steps, I thought, you know, this person yelled at me and worked a lot to be able to support me. And I thought back to his life and his father was an alcoholic who beat him and couldn't hold a job. So in God's economy, that person might very well be a hero, be a saint. I have to be an understanding person. It says, but for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. And I would say that it takes more than the intervention of an understanding person. I think woven throughout this chapter in this book are two twin themes of what's needed to recover, a loving, supportive environment and good information. So someone could be understanding for my first six and a half years, I had some sponsors who were really sweet and understanding. It didn't help me because they didn't give me correct information. And here it says, but for the intervention of an understanding person. And I think back on page 25, where it has a different but for. 
and it says, but for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations, thousands of more people who didn't recover. And it goes on to say, so many want to stop but cannot. And to me, that's really important because what that tells me is that it's possible to want to stop but to be unable to. In my first six and a half years in Overeaters Anonymous, I desperately wanted to stop. And I am sure that one of those 50 or so sponsors I had said she, she doesn't really want to stop. Larry, someone's unmuted. I don't know if you can fix that. Um, so many want to stop but cannot. Janet, press the, I think we, we muted the it. line and we had, got you, get, you got it? Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. So what that says to me is that desire alone is not enough. I need the grace of God. And these 12 steps are about how to access the grace of God. The word may sound like religious, but grace simply means unmerited favor. God helping me, even though I didn't deserve it. And, you know, sometimes people come around and they say, I believe in God, but I don't believe that God will help me. And I'll ask them why. And they say, I'm just not worthy. And I say, that's okay, because the word worthy is nowhere in our book. It never says we have to be worthy for God to help us. The only requirement is willingness. So unmerited favor, God doing for me what I can't do for myself. Top of page 138, they give us another principle. They say, we who have imposed on the best of employers can scarcely blame them if they have been short with us. So what that tells me is um, I can't impose on people. And if there are people who are short with me who don't like me, I have to look to see if I imposed on them. Have I asked them to do things for me that I was perfectly capable of doing myself? Have I asked them to fill in a love gap that I might have had before? I don't have it now because now I believe that God loves me unconditionally. But back in the day before I worked this program, I was the most needy, clingy person around. I imposed on people. Um, And then they talk about someone who's an officer of a large bank. And he's telling Hank about a a guy who works there who's an alcoholic. And so Hanks wants to be helpful. And he says, this seems to me like an opportunity to be helpful. So I spent two hours talking to him about alcoholism, the malady, and described the symptoms and results as well as I could. Two hours. What's the principle there? To put in the time. It's not just take two food plans and call me in the morning. I need to spend time with someone I'm trying to help to explain what this illness is, how it works, how our brains are short-circuited in a way that normal people's brains aren't, and to describe the symptoms. What are the symptoms of my illness? Resentment, fears, harms to other people. Those are the symptoms, and what are the results? If I keep going the way I, I was, it meant increased binging, meaning the binges get closer and closer together, and the amount of food required became more and more. And ultimately, it says insanity or death. I have to say, I was a living 
dead person. I walked around, I looked alive, but I think if you looked in my eyes, you would see I wasn't. All I cared about was myself, and as I put it, getting my needs met. But what I really wanted was having the whole world revolve around me. And so Hank spends two hours talking to his friend, head of a bank, and the banker says, that's interesting, but yeah, this guy just had a leave of absence, he had a cure, he looks good, and the final thing, the board of directors told him that this was his last chance. So what was the banker doing? He was thinking that fear was the solution. Here isn't the solution. I was at an OA convention once, and there was a woman there. She was diabetic, and her doctor had told her if she didn't stop overeating, it would affect her eyesight and her kidneys. When I met her, she had a seeing eye dog because she was blind, and she was waiting for a kidney transplant. Fear doesn't do it for any of us. And so what Hank said was that, if the man followed the usual pattern, which means there is a pattern, he would go on a bigger bus than ever. What's the usual pattern? The usual pattern is we binge and then we make a resolution not to do it. I promise I won't do it again. But that would be like me um, promising that I'll make my blood sugar go down. How can I make a promise like that? I'm, I can't do it without some kind of outside intervention. Um, my blood sugar is a little high, so I take you know, a medication once a day, and that helps my blood sugar. Until I did that, I could say, until the cows came home, I'm going to make my blood sugar go down. It didn't work. Why? Because I didn't have the power. You know, so many times, as I said, people said about me, oh, she just doesn't want to stop binging. That was wrong. I had the desire to stop binging. I didn't have the power. And what does our book tell us? In the chapter, We Agnostics, lack of power, that was our dilemma. Not lack of desire, not lack of knowledge, not lack of a good food plan. Yes, we need all those things, but our main problem is lack of power. And then they tell us, the main purpose of this book, to enable us to find a power greater than ourselves, which will solve our problem. That's the main purpose of this book, to connect me with this power. And so Hank continues talking to this banker friend, and he says, still on page 138, I pointed out that I had had nothing to drink whatever for three years, and this in face of difficulties that would have made nine out of 10 men drink their heads off. So I think here's another principle. Circumstances, difficulties are never the cause of my relapse. It never has to do with circumstance. When I was in this program, I went through a double miscarriage. That was a super hard thing. I went through um, helping a mom who had Alzheimer's. That was a hard thing. Um, and I didn't eat compulsively. But back before I worked these steps, I remember one day my boyfriend of the day and I were going to spend the day in Central Park and it was raining and I binged because it rained when I wanted it to be sunny. And if we think in our book, right, um, in chapter three, it talks about this guy, Jim, who had his family back, everything was going well, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life and he got drunk. And then in the chapter of vision for you, we can contrast that with Bill Wilson, when he's away on a business trip, 
discredited, almost broke, things are really bad, but he started Alcoholics Anonymous because circumstances are never the cause of my recovery or the cause of my relapse to do with my relationship with God. Top of page 139, Tang has just kind of exasperated that his brother executive didn't understand about this illness, and he said there was nothing to do but wait. Sometimes and pray. And I find that that's a good principle, especially with my children who aren't always on the path that I would want them to be. Um, all I can do is just wait and pray and commit them to God and not try to make things happen. So Hank says, okay, eventually this man did slip. He was fired. And then after he was fired, the small group of AA people contacted him. And it says, without much ado, it's page 139, he accepted the principles and procedures that had helped us. Why did he accept them then? Because he was at bottom. He knew that he couldn't do it on his own. So what are the principles and the procedures? Well, the principles are throughout this book, principles like honesty, self-sacrifice, tolerance for people with views who are di that are different than mine, and the procedures, the 12 steps. And what does he say? He is undoubtedly on the road to recovery. And I love that line because it tells us that if someone is working this program, they are undoubtedly on the road to recovery. So next paragraph, he says, okay, if you desire to help, and remember they're talking to the employer, it might be well to disregard your own drinking or lack of it. Whether you're a hard drinker, a moderate drinker, or a teetotaler, you may have some pretty strong opinions, perhaps prejudices. I mean, all those people, the hard drinker, the moderate drinker, or the teetotaler, they can all stop if they really want to. And there's, but they're saying, you may have some pretty strong opinions, perhaps prejudices. So I think a principle here is I need to examine my strong opinions and my prejudices, both in and out of the room, strong opinions about politics, about religion, about the way people are living their lives, and maybe even prejudices about people who have different food plans than I do. I can't have those if I want to be helpful. So skipping over to page 140, it talks, it says, can you discard the feeling that you're dealing only with habit, with stubbornness, or a weak will? Then it says, if you concede that your employee is ill, can he be forgiven for what he's done in the past? Can his past absurdities be forgotten? So I think there's a couple things here. It says, if you concede you're ill, that makes it easier to forgive. And um, one thing in my life that I'm ashamed of, it was a few years ago, and my mom had asked me to take her to a doctor's appointment, so I did it. But before I got there, she'd asked the front desk at her independent living to call me because I was late. Well, I wasn't late. I was right on time. And I got there. I'm like, Mom, why do you have them call me? I'm like, we said, whatever, 1 o'clock, and it's 1 o'clock. She said, oh, Okay. Well, about a week later, I found out that my mom had Alzheimer's. So, of course, if I had known that at the time, look how different my reaction would have been. I would have had compassion. When she said things that weren't right, it would have been okay because I understood 
she was ill. And then it tells us not only do we need to forgive, but it says, can his past absurdities be forgotten? Elsewhere in this book, I think it's in the family afterwards, it says that once we make our amends, once someone has made amends to us, unless some good and useful reason can come out of it, we don't bring it up again. So that means when we forgive someone, we don't harbor it in the back of, their, of our minds so that we can bring it up when they do something else we don't like, that we don't pile it on like, yeah, but remember you did A, B, and C. No, we forgive and we forget. And that, I think, is why prayer is so integral in resolving resentments. Um, this isn't self-help where it just says, okay, analyze who you resent, why, and what's your part. Right before we do what's your part, it has a, our book has a prayer section for us to do. It tells us we pray. We ask God to remove these resentments. Remove it. Just take it out of my heart so that I don't feel angry anymore and take it out of my mind so that I don't even remember it anymore. Okay, so bottom of page 40, they tell us your man has probably been trying to conceal a number of scrapes, messy ones. Top of page 141, it says afterwards, his revulsion will be terrible. And that tells me something important. A healthy conscience won't help me. Um, a healthy conscience is great, but that alone won't do it. I can know that it's wrong to binge. I can know that it's going to, you know, just get me sick and miserable and cause other people around me pain. I won't be able to stop because, again, my problem isn't lack of a healthy conscience. My problem is lack of power. Continuing on page 141, they say, if you are sure your man doesn't want to stop, to stop drinking, he may as well be discharged. The sooner, the better. Um, I think we have to be careful that there's a difference between being, between not wanting, between being unwilling and being unable. Um, sometimes I'll meet people and, and they'll, I'll say, what are you willing to do? And they'll say, well, I'm not, I guess I'm not willing to put down the food because I keep binging. And I'd say, really? then why are you coming to Overeaters Anonymous meetings if you're not willing? And they're like, huh. So it's like, are you willing and not able to? And they generally say, yes, that's it. One time I did have a person say, you know what, I'm really not willing to stop eating. I, yeah, I want to keep eating. And then that person is like, I have no business helping that person. I'm not obligated to help that person. I'm obligated to be kind and friendly in case the day comes when they do want to stop, but I'm under no obligation to sponsor them. So I think we have to be really careful that if someone isn't able to put down the food, it may not be because they're not willing. It may be because they're unable, and then we need to help them access the power greater than them that could solve their problem. My sponsor has drilled into my head. Well, actually, she said it once, but it stuck. A sponsor's job is to take a newcomer's job and put it into the hand of God. So my job is to figure out, does this person want to stop? And if they do, then I have to do whatever I can to help them. Um, page 141, again, second full paragraph, it says, there are many men who want to stop, and with them you can go far. Your understanding treatment of their cases will pay dividends. 
again, in order to help someone, we need to care about them. It's very hard to recover with a sponsor who you feel doesn't care about you um, because then we're going to be tempted to be dishonest because we don't want to incur our sponsor's wrath. Now, it's always on us, right, to be 100% honest, even if we don't have, you know, a warm sponsor. But I would say when we're sponsoring, we want to be warm. We want to care the way that we want other people to care about us. But again, if I care and give bad information, my caring won't do any good. Good information and love. Okay, top of page 142. It says, he can be assured you don't intend to lecture, moralize, or condemn. So I think those are really important principles for us to understand. We don't lecture, moralize, or condemn. Who of us ever got here because someone said, you know what, you're eating yourself into oblivion, you're wrecking your family life, you're destroying your children, you're feeling miserable, you know, it's just really terrible what you're doing. And then we said, oh, thank you, I think I'll go to Overeaters Anonymous, get a food plan, work 12 steps and recover. Thank you so much for lecturing, moralizing and condemning me. I guarantee not one person is here because of that. And it says, if possible, express a lack of hard feelings toward him, a lack of hard feelings. I can afford to be generous in my feelings towards others and being charitable towards others because God's got my back. It doesn't matter as much what other people do because there is a God who cares about me. And it says, express a lack of hard feelings. And at this point, it might be well to explain alcoholism, the illness. At this point, once a person feels cared for, People don't like to feel like they're projects. We build a relationship in the chapter working with others. It's so clear. We get to know the person. You know, we want to find out about them. We want to have a friendly relationship with them. And then we explain alcoholism, the illness. So I'm going to give kind of my two or three explanation of alcoholism, the illness, or compulsive eating, the illness, as I understand it. Um, so as they said a couple pages back, hard drinkers are able to stop if they have a really good reason, but not a compulsive eater. Why? Why can't I stop the way that, you know, I grew up in Florida and I went to the beach and a few times after getting a sunburn, I learned about sunscreen. You know, so why after a few binges didn't I learn that I'm not going to be able to stop after one? And here's the way I understand it. Um, Page 24 says that for us, our memory failed to hold us in check. And I always thought that was, I thought that was such a weird line. Like, what does my memory have to do about it? But now I get it. So my memory is my defense against doing something harmful. So let's take sunburns. Um, I go, go to the beach, get a sunburn, happens a few times. I'm about to go to the beach again. Stored in my memory are all these data points of, me going to the beach without sunscreen, and I get sunburned. So I'm about to go to the beach, just lie out in the sun, eh, leave my SPF 30 alone and put on that baby oil and get a good tan. And what does my memory do? It grabs the data points that are there. You went to the beach this day, you didn't put on sunscreen, and you got a horrible sunburn. You went to the beach this day, you didn't put on sunscreen, your nose peeled, your shoulders peeled, you were in terrible pain. You went to the beach this day over and over, then it 
generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind saying, danger, lying in the sun without sunscreen is dangerous. Don't do it. So I reach for my SPF 30 and I don't get a sunburn. Or for me, um, I have a terrible cat allergy. Um, so stored in my memory are all these data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. You went to this pet store and you had an asthma attack. You went to this place where there was a cat and you ended up with a sinus infection. You went to this place where there was a cat and you couldn't breathe. So my memory grabs a data point, generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind, say, danger, cats will give you an asthma attack. So I tell my friends, I'm very sorry, I can't go to your house. But when it came to food, it didn't work that way. So back in college, I remember I used to binge on a lot of things, but my particular favorite was this box of cookies. It came in a box of 20, and I would tell myself, I'm just going to have one or two. Well, we know how that story ended all the time. So stored in my memory are all these data points. You say you're going to have one or two, but you're going to eat the whole box. Don't do it. You say you're going to have one or two, but you're going to eat the whole box, and then you're going to get another box, and you're going to hate yourself, and you're going to make yourself throw up. Don't do it. Grab the data point. Generate the thought to, to run across a bridge to my conscious mind saying, danger, you won't be able to stop at one or two cookies. And don't tell yourself that you won't care tomorrow because you really will care. This is danger. Don't go buy that box. Don't do it. Except unlike with sunburns and cats, the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind is broken, and that thought can't get across. I have no effective mental defense against that first compulsive bite because when I tell myself I'm going to have just one or two, there's a strange mental blank spot that's left because my memory doesn't, can't hold me in check. There's a broken bridge. How did it get broken? Our book tells us we don't know, and even if we knew, it can't get fixed. That is a bridge that can never get fixed. There's an expression I used to hear at meetings, keep the memory green. That's actually not in the big book, and I believe is um, diametrically opposed to what the big book says. The big book tells us I have no memory, and I can't keep the memory green. I have a broken bridge. So what's my solution? I need to build another bridge, and that's a bridge to God as I understand him, and that's what these 12 steps are about. So they're saying once someone is hopeless, it's okay to explain that. Explain the broken bridge. And that if we explain it well, hopefully they'll say, then what do I need to do? And then we can tell them how to build their 12 steps to God. And it says, okay, if the person says he wants to stop, we don't just say, okay, we probe him. We say, do you? Will you take every necessary step, submit to anything to get well, to stop drinking forever? not just to lose 20 pounds for our high school reunion so we can look good in front of that boy who dumped us 20 years ago. Uh-uh, not for that, forever. And we really probe the person. You know, page 58 says, if you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then, and I always say then and only then, are you ready to take certain steps? So we have to make sure a person is willing to go to any length. And they say the person should understand that. Either you are dealing with a man who can and will get well, or you are not. 
well, how do I know if it's someone who can and will get well? Obviously, we can never know for sure. But then they say, after satisfying yourself that you're, after satisfying yourself that your man wants to recover and that he will go to any extreme to do so, you may suggest a definite course of action. So I say, once we satisfy ourselves that this person wants to recover and will go to any extreme to do so, and then if I give them the right course of action, they can recover. I mean, if someone is desperate to recover and I tell them the wrong thing, they won't recover, right? If I go to the doctor and I say my blood sugar is high and she gives me penicillin, well, and I take the penicillin, I'm following the course of action, but it's not the right course of action. So they say, okay, for most alcoholics who are drinking or who are just getting over a spree, we're on top of 143, a certain amount of physical treatment is desirable, even imperative. And in my book, I just wrote the word, a certain, a food plan. You know, right, we give someone a food plan. Um, not everyone does. I do. I believe it's important because, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you know you're sober because you're not drinking any alcohol. If I'm on a food plan, I know I'm sober. I know I'm abstinent if I'm sticking to the food plan. Then the next paragraph, they say, if your man accepts your offer, it should be pointed out that physical treatment, a food plan, is but a small part of the picture. Yes, I believe we need a food plan, but that's not, that alone won't do it. If it was, we would all have been at the paying ways and we all would have been successful there because we all would have gotten a food plan that worked. Um, they say, though you are providing him with the best possible medical attention, he should understand he must undergo a change of heart. Okay, what does that mean? I don't think it means a literal heart transplant. I've never known anyone in OA, you know, been told you need to go to a cardiologist and get a heart transplant to get a change of heart. They, it tells us to get over drink, to get over compulsive eating will require a transformation. Not just getting a little better, a transformation. We're talking caterpillar to butterfly stuff. That's required. It says a transformation of thought and attitude. Well, how do we get that? I couldn't transform my selfishness and self-centeredness any more than I could stop eating compulsively. But what does our book tell us? Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And what is a spiritual awakening? Well, our book tells us on page 25. It says, the great fact is just this and nothing less. So guys, we should settle for nothing less. We have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. And the word spiritual experience versus awakening um, is generally mean to show like an experience is often quicker and an awakening is often used to mean more slowly, but same thing deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. So in order to recover, I need that transformation. I need that change of heart where God changes the way I think and the way I relate to people. 
And then they tell us really um, a qualification. We all had to place recovery above everything. So without recovery, we would have lost both home and business. In our book, it says either God is everything or else he is nothing. God has to come first. I have to look at anything that I put ahead of God is an idol. If I put my sponsor's opinion ahead of God, it's an idol. If I put how my kids are doing, which was a tough one for me, ahead of God, that's an idol. God has to come first. How do I make God come first? What do I do so that that's a reality in my life? It just means when I make decisions, I think and I pray, God, what would you have me do? God, what's your will in this situation? Instead of my old way of thinking, which is, what do I want to do in this situation? And what do I need to do to get the outcome I wanted? I'm out of the outcomes business. I'm in the surrender business. Okay. Um, page 144, it says, are you not looking for results rather than methods? Because I'm sure the typical employer would say, okay, this, this stuff that you're having people do, this is weird. They have to surrender their life to God. They have to clean up their path, make amends. What does that have to do with drinking? But they say, we look for the results rather than the methods. And this is really important in my recovery. Um, as I said, for six and a half years, I was binging. Then I found a group of people who were not binging. And I had, right before a meeting, it was a Friday night, I had been stuffing bagel chips down my throat behind a locked bathroom door. And I went to this meeting and talked about the problems I was having. And then afterwards, I went up to the toughest person in that meeting, who I was um, pretty afraid of. And I just said, will you help me? And they said, what are you willing to do? And I said, whatever you tell me, and I meant it. And that person did not make it easy on me. Um, the first thing he said was, the first lie you tell, I'm dropping you. The next thing he said was, okay, you don't get to keep food in your house. I lived in New York City at the time, and I had a food sponsor who lived, uh, I don't know, about eight blocks from me. He said, every day you buy just enough food for that day, and then you bring it to your food sponsor's house on the way to work and show her. And once I went to her house, it took me three subway rides to get to my office, which is all the way down on the Lower East Side. And I was doing a social work type of job where my clients were all the way on the Upper West Side, all the way in Washington Heights. And so I was traveling sometimes all day and I would carry my food around, you know, my vegetables, like in a can with a can opener, carry my food for the day, stop at the deli in the morning to get my food for that day. It never occurred to me to say to my sponsor, are you frigging out of your head? All I said was, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I recovered. I cared about results rather than methods because I was desperate. Um, and they go ahead and they say, we suggest you draw this book to the attention of the doctor who's to attend your patient. Okay, that's if someone's in the hospital. Then it says, if the book is read the moment the patient is able, while acutely depressed, realization of his condition may come to him. It's good for us to know that we're hopeless. My first six and a half years in OA, people said like, it's okay, just keep coming. Yes, I should just keep coming. For sure, it's better to be in the rooms and out of the rooms. but it wasn't okay, right? Imagine if I'm at Diabetics Anonymous meetings 
and I'm just going to meetings but not taking the insulin, I'm not going to get one bit better. And that was me. We don't give false hope. Sure, someone feels hopeless, and then we give them the real hope. And then they go ahead and say, you're betting, of course, that your changed attitude of love and caring, plus the context, contents of this book, correct information, will turn the trick. In some cases, it will, and in others, it may not. We think if you persevere, the percentage of successes will gratify you. Well, first, I think the percentage of my successes is none of my business. It's God's business. My job is to just be obedient to what God would have me do. However many people he wants to get better, get better, that's up to him. I'm just responsible for having love and correct information. And by the way, it will never be 100%. And that keeps me humble, that I can't get 100% of people through the steps. Um, and it also is a relief. I'm not fully responsible for another person's recovery, and no one else is responsible for mine. Um, it says then, it closes that paragraph by saying, we are sure a great deal can be accomplished by the use of this book alone. We don't need to have the perfect sponsor. As my sponsor said to me, the only perfect sponsor is God. Um, we have the information in this book. And what I was told was that you have to do everything I tell you unless you can go in this book and find that it contradicts something in this book. And that's what I generally tell my sponsees too. I try and do things in this book. Now, um, you know, if you're a smart aleck like I was, you might say, well, this book doesn't talk about food plans. Okay, it doesn't. But there's nothing in, there, in here that would contradict being on a food plan. Um, top of page 145, it says, can you remain undisturbed if the man proceeds to tell you shocking things? And I think this is important um, when we're hearing fifth step, that we want to make our sponsees feel comfortable. I've heard all sorts of things confessed to me, and I've confessed all sorts of things. And one thing I often do to make my sponsees feel comfortable is to tell them some of the, like, really horrific things that I did in the illness. So they realize, like, again, they're not bad. They're sick, just like I was sick and would be sick if I ceased working this program. Then it tells us, um, page 145 is just filled with different principles we can practice. It says, can he talk frankly with you so long as he doesn't bear business tales or criticize his associates? I don't need to be the office or the OA town crier telling everyone what other people are doing. And I certainly am not allowed to criticize other people. Then it tells us what our greatest enemies are, resentment, jealousy, envy, frustration, and fear. So let's talk for a minute about those things. Resentment, well, we all know about that, right? From chapter five, it says, resentment cuts us off from the sunlight of the spirit. If I'm harboring resentment, if I'm a safe harbor for resentment and not looking to resolve them, I'm cutting myself off from God and then I'm sunk. Jealousy. So jealousy is a hostile, being hostile toward a rival or one I believe has an advantage. So that might be someone who my boss likes better, who may get the promotion that I don't. I'm not allowed to feel jealous. If I feel jealousy, I need to ask God to remove it and make amends if I've caused any damage. But I don't need to feel jealous of the person who has 
you know, a better job, a better house, a better fill in the blank. I stopped binging. Everything else in my life is a bonus. God owes me nothing. Envy, coveting what another has. Again, it doesn't matter if you have something I don't. I've got more than enough. I've got a relationship with God. I've got freedom from the obsession with food. Frustration. Well, that's just things aren't going my way, and I'm throwing a temper tantrum. I had that a lot as the result of my self-centeredness and my emotional demands that everything go my way. And fear. Now, back in Chapter 5, it says fear is an evil and corroding thread, page 67. And it says something I think is really strong. It says fear sets in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. So just like faith, right, our step two, coming to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity, actually sets things in motion, sets things in motion in the spiritual plane of God beginning to restore us to sanity. Fear does the opposite because fear isn't trusting in God. Fear is trusting in the illness, that things won't work. So it tells us those are our enemies, so we have to be mindful of them and try to root them out. Later um, on this page, it tells us there is an individual who is making friendly little jokes about an alcoholic's drinking exploits. In this way, he was slyly carrying tales, and that decreased the man's chance of recovery. Okay, why did it decrease his chance of recovery? Because he no longer felt cared for. Remember, people need to feel cared for. And slyly carrying tales. And I think sometimes we can do that in prayer requests, right? Like, oh, please pray for, you know, so-and-so. She just had an affair with her husband, you know, with someone else. Her husband left her, and she just beat up on her kids. She really needs prayer. Uh Uh-uh. We don't do things like that. And on page 146, it tells us positive principles to practice. It says, we defend people from needless provocation and unfair criticism. Page 146 continues another principle. It says, your man should be on his mettle to make good. And for myself, I think about that with my job, right? So I have to make good. I have to do good. And In my relationship with God, I owe God so much. What is the main thing he wants me to do? Be kind to his other children. Um, What if it's not natural for me to like want to make good, to work hard at my job, to help others? And I think if it's not natural, we can pray for it and act on it and act on it. I can work hard even if I don't want to. And I think I can always err on the side of kindness. That paragraph concludes by saying this work, helping others, is necessary to maintain his sobriety. Sponsoring is necessary. Um, For me, I learn more about God and get more reinforcements of this big book by sponsoring than by listening to great shares on meetings. Because when I'm sponsoring, the words just come alive to me. Um, Page 164 uses the word transmitting. I'm transmitting, I think more than words, I hope to be transmitting some of God's love um, while I'm doing this. So sponsoring is so critical. I get information and insights and 
thoughts and like solutions to problems as I'm helping other people. So bottom of the page, it says, okay, what if your guy, they're talking to the boss, calls in sick? Says, you may jump to the conclusion he is drunk. If he is and is still trying to recover, he will tell you about it, even if it means the loss of his job, for he knows he must be honest if he would live at all. So they're saying honesty is so important that it's worth losing a job over. And I believe it's true. Um, in chapter five, it talks about rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed these steps. Those who don't are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to the simple program, usually people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And they go on to say, even people with grave emotional and mental disorders do recover if they can be honest. I firmly believe that if we are not honest, we won't recover, even if we do everything else right. If I'm not honest, it's like I'm taking a big black Sharpie and writing the words, keep out God across my heart. God won't coexist with dishonesty. And by the way, I did have a chance to put this into practice. I was new in recovery. It had to be less than four months. And I had lost my prior job. And I went on a job interview. And they asked me, um, what happened in your former job? And I told a dishonesty. I told a lie. I said, I quit. And I went home. And I'm like, I was dishonest. I can't do that. And I called back. And I said, I was dishonest. I wasn't quit. I was fired. I was willing to not get the job because my sponsor had drilled into me how important it was to be honest. And by the way, I did get the job um, because God is good, but even more important, whether or not I got the job, I continued abstinence. So page 147, they're talking to the boss and they say, in case he does stumble, even once, you will have to decide whether to let him go. If you are sure he doesn't mean business, there's no doubt you should discharge him. Okay, how can we be sure if someone doesn't mean business? And this is what I think. If I've given my sponsor things to do, let's say go to five meetings a week and make three phone calls a day, and she continues to not do them, then I would say she does not mean business. And then if she keeps picking up, I feel no compunction about, get, about letting her go. Um, but if she's doing all the work, then I feel, okay, it's my job to help see what's going on. Is there, what is the reason she um, keeps relapsing? And I have to dig in there with her. You know, they say you should feel under no obligation to keep him on for your obligation has been well discharged already. But they are talking to the employer only. They give different advice to the spouse on page 120. I mean, remember, back in one of the forwards, 25% of the original members of AA failed at first and got sober after some relapse. So 25% didn't make it at first, but they still kept working with them. And I look at... Um, Jim, it says he got drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. It says, but we carefully worked with him, looking to see what the problem was. 
I mean, I once heard someone say, well, half a dozen times, he probably had half a dozen different sponsors. I don't agree with that at all. If I am sponsoring someone and I am convinced she is doing her utmost, who better to help her than me who already knows her story, who's heard what she's, what her problems are, who can try and help her. Now, there are times when if I just feel this person is really trying and I can't help them, um, I may say, I just can't help you. But I don't, as a rule, say maybe you need another voice because, honestly, like, there's nothing wrong with my voice if someone isn't working the steps. The problem is she's not working the steps. So I think we have to be really careful to just say, yeah, you picked up, I'm done with you. I don't think the founders of the program did that, um, and I don't think it's, it's helpful or loving. Um, page 148, they say, it boils right down to this. No man should be fired just because he is an alcoholic, a compulsive eater. If he wants to stop, he should be afforded a real chance. How can we, make, how can we give someone a real chance? Correct information, which we can get by studying this book and love. So bottom of page 149 has a bunch of spiritual principles. It says, it is not to be expected that an alcoholic employee will receive a disproportionate amount of time and attention. He should not be made a favorite. Now here's a principle. One, the right kind of man, the kind who recovers, will not want this sort of thing. So I don't need to look to be my sponsor's favorite, my boss's favorite. I do look to be my husband's favorite, but I think that's okay. Um, number two, it says, he will not impose. We're not supposed to impose on people. Ask people to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Um, three, he will work like the devil. I mean, I'm not quite sure how hard the devil works, but I'm assuming he, they're meaning he works hard. So we work hard at helping other people. And four, he will thank you to his dying day. And I think thanking God is so important. It doesn't just mean typing a gratitude list. That's great. But when I type out my gratitude list on my app, when I'm done, I sit there and I take a moment and I thank God for everything on that list. Because remember, this program is about my relationship with God. So at the very end, page 150, he talks about people in his employee who recovered. And he says they have a new attitude and they've been saved from a living death. Not that they've saved themselves, they've been rescued. I think this is so important. If there's a flood and the sheriff's coming around uh, with a bullhorn saying, there's a flood, get to the roof so the helicopter can rescue you. It's my job to climb to the roof so that the helicopter can rescue me. But let me never be so arrogant as to say I rescued myself. I was saved. I was rescued. All I did was put myself in the place where I could be rescued. And that's what these steps are about. And then he concludes by saying, I have enjoyed every moment spent in getting them straightened out. Our joy returns to us, right? I had no joy in this illness. I just tried to suck happiness out of people and things but I didn't have that inner joy. So page 133, right, what does it tell us? We are sure that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. I mean, truthfully, I can't really pursue that happiness, joy, and freedom. It doesn't work. I think they're byproducts. 
when I pursue God through these 12 steps, the guaranteed result is a spiritual experience, right? God coming into my heart and life in a way which is indeed miraculous. And when he does that, how could I not be happy, joyous, and free? And with that, I pass. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Thanks, Janet. Such a deep appreciation for your presentation. Well, you can you can take the girl out of Jersey, drop her into North Carolina, but you can't take the Jersey out of the girl, right? <laughs> so it was a truly inspiring and educational uh, presentation, and it was, a, it was a real demonstration of God's uh, handiwork, so much appreciated. We're going to now uh, transition into a Q, uh, to a Q&A portion of the presentation, but before we do that, let me give you the share ID for Janet B's uh, presentation this morning. That number is 20,785. That's 20785. And so let's now transition. If you have a question for Janet B, uh, press star one and give me your first name and last initial, and I'll try to do my best to hear you. Kim B. Kim? Yes. Okay, got Kim B. Who else? Don't be shy. Matthew G. Karen K. Karen K. Gotcha. Anna B. Anna. Who else? Okay, we got Kim, Matthew, Karen, and Anna. That's a good start there. Let's uh, let's go ahead and start with a question from Kim B, followed by Matthew. Kim, good morning. For your service, this is Kim B, gratefully recovered in Wisconsin, and thank you, Janet, for your amazing presentation. Um, actually, I like both the introduction and what you had to say, Janet. And um, my question is. Um, I would just be curious, one thing that I'm really trying hard at my new job I just got a few months ago is how to avoid um, character assassination. Um, I take on, I, I want to be supportive of my staff, and um, I work in, in social services myself. Um, and so I was just wondering how, you know, I take on all this kind of negativity about the boss or this or that and how they're being treated. And I just don't want to get caught up in that negativity. So I was just curious, how do you help, how do you um, try to not get into that negativity and not assassinate character, if that makes sense? And that's it, I pass. Okay, so I think there's a couple of things. Um, and you can, I guess, pick whichever works for you. You can go to people and say, you know what, I've really, like, not while they're character assassinating anyone, but before, but to just say, you know, I've noticed in myself, I've really had a problem with, like, gossiping, and I'm trying so hard to stop it. Can you please help me? And if you catch me doing it, please, like, let me know. So that's one thing that may make them less likely to do it. Um, you can always try and change the subject walk out of the room, or as my friend Melissa has said, ask people about their children or their grandchildren. People like to talk about nothing more than their children and grandchildren, and just try and change the subject. And of course, we don't get into it. If we want to 
talk about our boss. I was going to say vent, but, you know, we're not really supposed to vent. We're supposed to do our resentment inventories. Then the best thing is to talk about, talk to a, to someone who doesn't know your boss about it. And so those are my thoughts. I hope it helps. Thanks for the question, Kim. Okay, next up we have Matthew followed by Karen. Brother Matthew, good morning. Good morning. Hi, this is Matthew G. Um, recovered compulsive overeater in France. Um, thank you so much, Janet. That was tremendous. I can't wait to re-listen um, to the recording where I can pause and take notes. Just a tremendous. The ending actually like literally gave me what felt like a spiritual experience. So beautiful about the happy, joyous, and free. Incredible. Thank you. Could you talk a little bit more? I also loved about um, how self-centered fear, how fear can generate um, bad events, and how the opposite of childlike faith can actually generate good events. I just love that. Could you talk a little bit more about that, please? Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, of course. Hey, Matthew. Um, so in the physical world, um, money is the currency, right? If I want a bag of groceries or a tank full of gas in my car, I hand the clerk a $20 bill or a credit card, and that's how I get things, right? But that's not how it works in the spiritual world. I can't hand God a $20 bill or a credit card. So what do we do? What's the currency in the spiritual world? And I believe it's faith activated by prayer. And I'm thinking about the steps. And, you know, a lot of them are like things that we do. We admitted, we made an inventory, we, um, we made our amends. There are things we do. We take inventory. But step two is a little odd. It says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Why is that step there? That's not something I really do. And how can I even control what I believe? But they're telling me I can. And chapter four is all about that, how I can come to believe, um, right? Because chapter four says on page 55, Deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may just be obscured by certain things. So I have to have faith. So if I come to believe a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity, it's on page 46. It says, as soon as a man says he believes or is even willing to believe, we begin to be possessed of a new sense of power, right? That's what my problem was, lack of power and direction. So as soon as I say I believe or I'm willing to believe, I get access to power, that faith is actually the currency in the spiritual world and faith in God's goodness and that God will help me actually brings about those things, God helping me in the spiritual world. Well, then the book talks about fear and the same type of thing, right? Faith sets in motion, God restoring me to sanity. But page 67 says, fear sets in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve, but did not we ourselves set the ball rolling. Um, so it says, some of the misfortune in my life, I set the ball rolling by fear, by not trusting in God. So that's how I read those parts of the book. Thanks. 
Thanks, Matthew. Uh, Karen, you. one day only. Thanks, Matthew. Karen, uh, followed by Anna. Karen, one day only. Credits uh, transfer today. <laughs> Good morning. That is true. Hi, my name is Karen Kay from Syracuse, New York, and my credits don't transfer. I really enjoyed your show, Janet. Uh, my bridge is still under construction, and I think it will be for a lifetime. Could you kind of go over that broken bridge uh, scenario? I know I've listened to your podcast before, but could you simplify it for me? Um, like the thing? So normally, right? Um, my memory. Yeah. So it's really it's laid out on page twenty-four that we are okay. people unable consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of a week or a month ago defense against the first drink or the first compulsive bite. So they're saying normally my memory of suffering protects me. My memory of sunburns protects me against future sunburns. My memory of cat-induced asthma attacks protects me from wanting to go into a pet store. But that same mechanism when it came to food, my memory of how horrible the binges are, how horrible I felt the next day, that memory cannot make it across the bridge to my conscious mind where I make my decisions. I cannot rely on my memory to keep me protected, to say this time, like, oh, this binge was so bad, I'm gonna remember this so that I'll never do this again. It doesn't work. I need to build a bridge to God so that God, can, God himself can protect me. And that's what the steps are about. That bridge is forever broken, the bridge to my memory. I can't say, oh, now I get it. The bridge to my memory is broken. I'll fix it. I'll remember more strongly enough. We can't. It doesn't work. I need to build a bridge to God through faith, through surrender, through cleaning up my past, through making my amends, and then living my life in service to others, cleaning up the wreckage I create each day, and praying and meditating to get a better understanding of my loving creator. Thanks. Thank you, Jan. I'm grateful that my bridge is still broken. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Okay, before we, we set up for more uh, questions, if there are some, um, Anna, it's your turn. Good morning. Good morning, Larry. I really appreciated what you shared. And Janet, that was just off the chain, exactly what I need. Thank you. My question is, what have you? How did you uh, overcome deep-seated resentments? So, I think um, a couple things. One, well, well, three things. One I had mentioned was to really try to understand the other person. You know what they might have gone through. What you know, get an understanding of them and their life. The second thing is to really see my part to just if I see my part that melts most of my resentments um I guess there's two more things one more is prayer to just pray um in one of the chapters in the back oh and I always forget the name of it but I'm sure Larry will say it and remember it um where it's the prayer that we say every day for two weeks I have done that prayer every day for two weeks and almost always before the two weeks are over my resentment is gone it's like god took an eraser across my heart and mind and got rid of it 
And the fourth thing I did to one that was very deep in me, um, I, I saw that, okay, I could be nice to that person, but I was secretly hoping that when that person died, God would show them all the things they'd done bad to me and that then they would feel guilty. And I just said, God, when this person dies, anything they've done to harm me, don't hold it against them when you judge them. I let go of my right to cosmic revenge, even though my feelings weren't there. And then ultimately my feelings caught up and I can say I have no bad feelings toward that person now. So those are four things that hopefully could be helpful. Thanks for the question, and uh, and uh, yes, I will display my neuroticism <laughs> here, page <laughs> page five fifty two, in a story, freedom from bondage. I'm embarrassed. Okay, um, uh, okay. So who else has a question for uh, uh, for Janet this morning? Polly B. Polly. Sally A. Sally. Joanne L. Joanne. Linda G. Linda. Oh, my God, you guys are so kind. Yeah. I got Polly, Sally, Joanne, and Linda. That's a good – you know what? Let's stop there. Let's stop there because I'm not sure where we'll be at that point as I'm looking at the clock. So let's – was it Polly? Did I get that right, starting with yeah. Polly? Hi, you Polly. Did, good morning. Thank you. Thank oh, you, Larry, for your service. Thanks, everyone, who makes this meeting possible. Polly B. Recovered for today, gratefully, in North Carolina. And Janet, that was another amazing lesson. And I so appreciate your pace and the clarity of how you teach us the big book. You mentioned um, someone being willing and able to put down the food or unwilling or willing and unable. Where do you meet the person if they are willing and unable to put down the food? What, how do you start? Thank you. I pass. So if someone can't put down the food, the problem is lack of power. So then my job as a sponsor is to get them hooked up with a source of power as quickly as possible. I have found that with most people, as soon as they start working these steps, just like Bill said, right, I had the curious experience and the moment I made up my mind to go through with this, the alcohol would be removed as in fact it was. The alcohol problem would be removed. And usually that happens um, once someone starts on this work and is committed to doing it. If not, um, then my job is to get them to step two really quickly because that's where we get our first infusion of power, right? Our book says lack of power, that was our dilemma. And power starts coming in at step two. So that means I just need to get them through the steps more quickly. Um, and so that's how I handle it. Thanks, Polly. Okay, Thank next up we have, yeah, thanks for the question. Next up we have Sally followed by Joanne. Hi, Sally, good morning. Hi, Larry. It's Sally A. in New York. Um, thank you so much, Janet. That was fabulous for me and I'm sure for many others. So, Janet, I wanted to talk to you about uh, honesty, which um, you mentioned about the importance of honesty. And if we don't have that, we really are up the creek without a paddle. Um, because it is on so many lists of the essentials is honesty. But, you know, you also talked about 
um, our broken um, memories, you know. Um, I just wanted to say that I think it's a big part of who I am and what has led me back and forth into years of recovery and then years of relapse is because I, I do take my will back. Um, I walk with God, and as soon as everything looks like it's calm, cool, and collected, okay, catch you later to God. And so when we get to this point of honesty, I wanted to ask you, um, what's the sustaining aspect of it? I keep thinking, like, well, pray before every single meal and be sure that you're being honest with what your food is. But it's just beyond too silly to think that move is going to change me. And I know it's a lot about changing me. So what say you about this level of honesty that's needed and how to maintain that relationship with God and let go of my sick relationship with food? Thank you. Okay. Oh, good questions. I have two things to say. So first, you know, a friend of mine who was in AA said, when someone first can't, comes to AA, they can stop lying and they can stop stealing. Those are things that we can do on our own willpower to, to be honest. I can make myself be honest. I mean, I was a compulsive liar. And when my sponsor said, you have to be honest or I'm dropping you, I decided I was going to be honest. So sometimes I would catch myself being dishonest. Um, and right away, I would fix it. I would make myself fix it, no matter how embarrassing it was. Um, so that's what I did about that. Then as to your other question, it's like, how do you maintain it? So in the book, I think it's in the chapter of Vision for You, it says um, about a guy who will drink again because he isn't happy about his sobriety. And in chapter six, it talks about... Um, at this point, we are trying to get our lives in order, but that's not the real purpose. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum usefulness to God and the people about us. That at some point, there needs to be a shift where I'm no longer running from food, but I'm running toward an enhanced relationship with God um, and others. So what do I do in order to um, – so I don't, I'm – I don't live anymore in fear of food. I live that I want more God. I mean, I pray to God, like, please help me desire you more. Please help me know you better. Please help me to serve you better. Now I'm more interested in getting more God in my life and like helping more people and being good at helping people. So a shift generally change starts. Um, I don't know exactly where for everyone, but by the time we're through the ninth step, our job is to maintain our relationship with God. Thank you so and much, Janet. Yeah, and it's work, right? We put in work. I spend probably about an hour a day in the morning um, in prayer, meditation, spiritual reading in order to get closer to God. And I'm excited about that. Not every day because um, I'm human, but, you know, I'm like, I want more God. Thanks. Thanks so much, Sally. Okay, we Joanne, it's your turn for a question followed by Linda. Good morning, Joanne. Joanne, I don't hear you. Press, press star one. Uh, I uh, Am I unmuted now? You are. 
Okay. Um, I, uh, this is Joanne L. from Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm wondering if, um, first of all, thank you both for your service. And Janet, uh, your analogy of the broken bridge in my brain has been pivotal in my understanding of my disease. So I thank you for that. Um, I'm wondering if you can simplify for me uh, the best way to do a 10th step with, with a fellow when, you know, prayer alone didn't seem to take care of those things that crop up. And can you differentiate what that looks like compared to a venting session? And is venting always never a good thing to do? Um, not th therapeutic or, yeah, I guess that, a two-part question. <laughs> is is venting always a no-no? And what is well, a, a better way to, yeah. to express those things that are bugging you? Okay. So if I'm... I'm sorry, I can't hear you. You know what, Janet? Um, try to try to unmute yourself again if you if you can. We, I think we lost you. Maybe we cleared the lines. I'm not sure. Can you hear me now? Oh, there we go. Yeah, you're back. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Sorry. So if I'm venting, it means by definition that I'm angry. And if I'm angry, resentful, I need to do a ten step. I need to see my part. So, I mean, I, for me, the way I do it is I look and I see who I resent, why, what it affects in me, and then I pray. I pray for God to remove the resentment. I pray to be able to see my part. And then I look for my part. I look for the, I look for the defects involved. I'll talk to someone else, or sometimes if it's a small one, I'll just send it off. Ask God to forgive me, and then if there's any amends, make the amends, and then go about my day. But I think the critical part is to pray and then to really see our part. When I learned how to do that, how to really look for my part, that was just so helpful because I find that melts 90% of the resentment. Thanks. Thanks, Joanne, for the question. Okay, so we're going to go to our final question from Linda. Linda, good morning. Hi, good morning, guys. Linda G. from Texas. Question. We talk, you talked a lot about working with your sponsees. Do you have any experience or can say if a person has major depression, can they still work the step? I was so... I don't. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Page 58 says that there are people with grave mental and emotional disorders, and many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. So I go by that. If someone's got some kind of mental illness, I mean, I like, it's helpful for me to know about it, but I don't deal with that at all. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I don't give any advice on medication. Um, I just deal with compulsive eating. And as long as the person has the ability to be honest, then I can try and help them. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a great question, Linda. Thanks. 
And and just once again, oh my gosh, Janet, thank you so much. It was such a generous use of your time, and it was just tremendously helpful to all of us. So much appreciated. I'm going to give the uh, the share idea once again on the recorded portion here for Janet's presentation because she's paid by the uh, the listen. No, not really. Um, Twenty thousand seven hundred and eighty-five. That'd be nice, right, Janet? Twenty thousand seven eight five two zero seven eight five is the uh, is the share ID code for Janet's presentation. So we're going to close and just you know stay tuned here because we're going to get Janet's uh, contact information, her credit cards, her garage code, everything. We're going to get that at the end of the the, the recorded uh, por uh, portion here. But I'm going to close with a a reading from page one sixty four in the chapter titled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.